It's good to be with you this morning on the Lord's Day, the opportunity to gather together and to worship the great God that we serve. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as we continue to work through this wonderful letter that the Apostle Paul um, has written to the church at, at Thessalonica. And this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to look at, at verses 1 through 11. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so, so thankful, so thankful that we have an opportunity to gather together as your people, unhindered, unmolested, not concerned about being put in jail for gathering together this morning. I thank you, Lord, that we have this privilege. We have the privilege to open your word and, and to try to understand it and to proclaim it. And we have this, <clears throat> this privilege to be able to hear from you. Lord, we need to hear from you this morning, not from me, not from the thoughts in our head, but, but from you. I pray that your word would come through, Lord, clearly this morning. That you would protect your sheep from anything false or incorrect that I would say, or anything that would be a distraction to your glory. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time that we have together. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> a few miles down the road from the city of Marion, Indiana, is a little town called Fairmont. Most of you, or some of you may be familiar with that little town where James Dean grew up, the uh, famous actor that lived only to be 24 years old. I was looking at a kind of a biography of him recently, and as I was preparing the sermon, um, there were a couple of things that stood out to me. <clears throat> the first thing that, <laughs> that got my attention, and not that I normally quote from James Dean as being someone that we need to you know, model our lives after, but he said something very interesting as a young man before he became famous. He said, I think that there is only one form of greatness for man. Just one form of greatness. 
If a man can bridge the gap between life and death, I mean, if he can live on after he has died, then maybe he was a great man. To me, the only success, the only greatness is immortality. Immortality. It's something that never quite leaves our imagination. It's something that we think about probably on a, on a fairly regular basis. That at some point down the road in this journey that we're on, uh, we're going to, we're going to meet death. And then if you are walking with the Lord, um, you will be meeting the Lord. And the, these thoughts and these ideas of, uh, this coming time, um, when we will be together with him, as Pastor Matt spoke about last Sunday, when we'll be together with him, we, we think about these things and we rejoice and we're, we're excited and we're happy. But we don't know how that will all play out, do we? We don't know what that will look like. James Dean certainly didn't. And he certainly didn't uh, live his life in a way um, that was um, living in earnest expectation of the coming of the Lord. But he thought about it, just like the rest of us do. When will this time come? And what about this, this idea of the day of the Lord? What does it mean? You hear it, if you've read your, your Bible and you've spent time in the Word over the years, you've heard this idea of the day of the Lord. Listen to a couple of verses. I want to read just a couple just to give you a little bit of a flavor from the Old Testament because that's where we get a lot of the, the idea of what the day of the Lord looks like. Jeremiah 46.10 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud, and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Jeremiah 46.10, Amos 5.18-20. through 20. For that day belongs to the Lord God of hosts, the day of vengeance, so as to avenge himself on his foes. And the sword will devour and be satiated, and it will drink its fill of their blood. For there will be slaughter for the Lord God of hosts in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. That's the prophet Amos. And of course, Joel talks about there will be a time when there will be no darkness. There will be darkness, excuse me, no light. As Isaiah says, <clears throat> a man will flee from a lion and a bear will meet him. <laughs> or he will lean his hand against the wall and a snake will bite him. <clears throat> will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? Even gloom with no brightness in it? <clears throat> So you need to understand that why are you reading these passages? These are kind of gloomy. These are depressing. Why are you reading these things? Well, because when we look at what the, the Apostle Paul was trying to teach, and he, he started this somewhere around chapter 4, verse 13. He's trying to communicate to the people of God within this church what this final time period is going to look like. And what should their expectation be for it? And the only way to really do that, I think one of the things that he understands already because he's the one that taught them is that 
The only way to do that is to remind them of the things that God spoke through his prophets in the Old Testament. This is going to be their, their point of reference. What did God say about the day of the Lord or this, this wonderful, uh, terrible, horrific, great day that's going to come? And so this is, the, you have to think, this is the point of reference that they have when they think about this idea. Oh, Paul says this is what he's going, this is what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. This is pretty important. This is, these are the things that we understand about it. Well, look at, let's look a little bit closer at his description of it here in verse one or verses one through three. He says, now concerning the, the times and the seasons, brothers, obviously they have question about it, don't they? There was probably a, a false teacher or some false gossip going around in the church um, saying that the day of the Lord is going to be like this, or the day of the Lord has already happened. We know from last, last week with Pastor Matt's message in chapter four, that there was uh, empty conversation going on that there perhaps maybe their brothers and their sisters in Christ who had passed away were going to miss out on that resurrection, that resurrection of life, that somehow they've missed the boat. And of course, Paul has to correct that. But now he gets a little bit more specific when he's talking about this idea of the day of the Lord. This is what he says. First of all, you don't have any need to have anything written to you about it, which is interesting. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you about it anyway. <laughs> That's what Paul usually does. For you yourselves are, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying that there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. You know, the, one of the pesky things about a thief is that you know, they're not very courteous. They don't bother to call you ahead of time and tell you when they're coming. It's a little bit of a surprise. And of course, it would be ridiculous for them to do so. But he gives us, he, he paints us this picture um, and gives us this, this description, this imagery of what this day is going to be like. And it's, he says, it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be a surprise, meaning you're not going to know, and I'm not going to know when it's going to come. It's just going to be there. It's going to happen like that. And we will not be able to predict that. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. And it's going to be unwelcome. <laughs> and it's going to be harmful to those who are not prepared. So it's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected, Paul says. It's going to be unwelcome. And it's going to be unharmful to those who are not prepared. The truth of the matter is, is that it will come during a time when people will be in utter shock. They will not be prepared for that time and that moment. Thessalonians knew for certain that the day of the Lord was going to arrive unexpectedly. Have you ever had anything broken in? Have, a, have you ever had a thief broken into your house before or something stolen from you? Uh, when you go back and you try to find that item, all of a sudden you notice something's missing. It's a surprise, isn't it? I'm not particularly proud of this story, um, but uh, at one point in time, I had my car stolen. Actually, we had my wife and I had both of our cars stolen at uh, one point within a 24-hour period. <laughs> but I, I, I left my car running one day, and uh, I was driving, getting ready to drive up to Indianapolis to see my, my mother and father. And we lived in an apartment building, and the car, the parking lot where the cars were parked were about 10 or 12 feet from our front door. 
And I left the car running. I thought, I have to run in real quick and grab something. Because I know we'll be right back out. There's no point in shutting the engine off. We live in a, a very uh, friendly, safe town called Louisville, Kentucky. You know, things like that don't happen. And um, I was in there, my my home, for about 45 seconds. And I turned around. And, you know, I almost had to sit down. I, I said to, you know, to my wife, where's my car? Did I? Did I forget that I did I park it somewhere else and it was gone like that that fast? And they had they had snatched it before I had even had an opportunity to turn around and see it. And then they came back later with the key to my wife's car and they got her car on the same day and that was also a surprise. So when I think about surprises uh, and I think about thieves, I don't have the most you know the most fond memories of that that time period. It was a horrific day. It was a it was a shocking day. And that's what Paul says the day of the Lord is going to be like. It's interesting, some of the things that he talks about come right out of Jesus' teaching uh, in the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, listen to what Jesus says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. This idea of complete unexpectedness. It's sudden. It's quick. And it's shocking. The time, His time of arrival when the Lord will come back will be a time when no one will be expecting it. No one will be understanding what's happening. The thief will come. When he comes, he doesn't call in advance and let you know he's coming. He just comes and takes your things and, and he leaves. And then you're, we're, the unbelieving world at that point in time will be left to pick up the pieces. But in the same way that, 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 that Jesus gives a description of this in the Olivet Discourse, Paul gives a little bit more of a picture, a, a little bit clearer of a picture as he builds off of what Jesus says, and he says that this is what people will be saying. This is, this is the idea and the feeling that, that people will have in terms of the culture and the context of the culture when this happens. Jeremiah 6, the prophet Jeremiah says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace. When there is no peace, Ezekiel says the same thing. They have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. Paul says that they will be saying, Peace and safety, peace and security, when no peace will be there left to be found. Verse 4 through 5, Paul says, But you are not in darkness, brothers. You are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the day or of the darkness. Now these, these ideas of light and darkness, the, you know, these interesting analogies um, or metaphors that Paul's using, they shouldn't be something that's new to us, should they? If we know our Bible and we've spent time reading through the Gospel of John and, and John's epistles, these ideas of, of light and darkness, um, daytime and nighttime, 
All of the, these ideas and these concepts um, have been taught in different places before. Uh, for example, John chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of Jesus, John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So he says, Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. But what's the darkness? The darkness is the evil, sinful, unbelieving, pagan world that we live in. That's the darkness that the light is shining through and overcoming. Later on in one of his epistles, John says in 1 John 1.5, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we proclaim to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. You say that you have fellowship with him. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, John says, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you have this idea of, of God is light, and the light is a purifying light, isn't it? It's a light that, that cleanses. It's a, it's a light that is holy. And it's a light that brings redemption, redemption from sin and forgiveness of sin. John goes on further to say in 1 John chapter 2, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Listen to what he says in verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and he walks in darkness and he does not know where he's going. Huh. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, that's that's not difficult to understand. You ever walked into a dark room? You ever tripped over something, walk, you know, walking into a dark room or bumped into something? It's the same concept. They don't know where they're going because their eyes have been blinded. They cannot see, cannot see properly. They cannot discern spiritual truths. That's really what we're getting at here. They don't understand the spiritual realities like what the people of God understand. So Paul, he gives them an exhortation, verse 6. So then let us not sleep. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. We met uh, a few days ago, um, Pastor Matt and uh, Prasanna and, and Ben Winstrom and I uh, all met last Tuesday in, in Pastor Matt's office. We were discussing this passage, and uh, Ben, I'm going to use one of your quotes if you're watching today. I'm going to use one of your concepts that you talked about. I hope it's okay. Um, you know, we talked about this idea of sin and what what sin is like, and, and Ben gave a really interesting description of it. It's actually something that I'd been thinking about for a long time, but he really said it perfectly. He said, you know, sin is kind of like slowly walking around in a sleep or a, or a haze the entire day. It's not, it's not about sudden, sin is not about suddenly walking off of a, off of a cliff. It's about this idea of, of almost like you're sleepwalking through life. 
it's almost as if there's a there's a a darkness and a haze over the eyes of the unbeliever, and they just kind of cruise on through life without giving things a second thought. That's how sin works. It's uh, a deadening disease. It's a a slow death that sin that sin causes. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, or I should say one of the later early church fathers, said, um, he said this about this passage. If one watches, if one watches but is not sober, he will fall into numberless dangers. He's not just speaking about the unbeliever here. He's speaking about us. If one watches but is not sober, he will fall into numberless dangers dangers. Of course, the same exhortation is given by uh, the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. He gives the same mentality. Jesus speaks about this. If you're a student of the Word of God, then you're a student of the Gospels. You know the things that Jesus speaks about, and particularly in regards to this. You remember the the parable of the ten virgins. I couldn't leave this, this part. I just couldn't leave it out. It's so relevant to what to what Paul is talking about. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. There's a problem, though. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise, they took their flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. This idea of drowsiness, sleepiness. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are getting ready to go out. Yeah, we didn't bring enough oil. We were kind of silly. Can you let us borrow some of your oil? But the wise answered saying, well, since there will not be enough for us and for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. The door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. Jesus says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I can't uh, imagine anything more relevant to this idea than what Jesus is teaching here. That this time is going to come when unbelieving world is not watching, not expecting, not paying attention to spiritual things. Here's the good news. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might be 
or we might live with him. Let me read that again. For God has not destined us to wrath. You understand the, the significance of that? That if you are in Christ today, you've trusted in him, your sins have been forgiven, been wiped away, slate's been wiped clean, as far as the east is from the west, that you are not appointed today unto wrath. You say, well, this day that you're describing or that Paul is describing, that Jesus is describing, it's kind of scary. I don't really like the sound of it. And to be honest, I'd, I'd rather we just not even talk about it. It kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. Paul says, you don't need to worry about that if you're trusting in him, if you're one of his. You don't need to be concerned about that because we've not been destined to wrath. We've been appointed to obtain salvation through Christ Jesus. Why is that? Why, why have we been appointed? Because he died for us. He died for us. Do you understand the gravity of that? That some someone had to die in order for you and I to be forgiven? Do you understand the significance of that? The Jews had a difficult time understanding it. They had to walk through the sacrifices to understand something had to be killed in order for an atonement to be made. In this case, in order for us to be forgiven, the Son of God had to be murdered. He had to be killed so that our sins could be taken away. And because of that, if, you're, if you believe in him and you're trusting in him, you are not appointed for wrath on that day when he comes back. Something fantastic about that. There, there, there's something that uh, is encouraging about that, knowing that someday when he comes back, there will be a judgment when he judges the world. And everyone will have to give an account. But the good news is the account that you and I will be giving will not be based off of a life of ungodly uh, idleness, ungodly idolatry. It'll be based on a life, hopefully, this morning, hopefully, it'll be based on a life of sacrifice and dedication and worship to the Lord Jesus. So that day should not be a surprise to you. One commentator, uh, Bengal, says, those who don't, those who watch and those who are sober have no need to be concerned about this second coming, this return of Christ. They have no need for it. Why, why worry about it? When it comes, it's good news. And yet, one of the things that I've seen that um, could be very distractful, I'm going to be completely honest with you, is an over-focus and an over-concentration on when these things will take place. I have people in my own family that um, are constantly thinking and worrying about, it could be tomorrow, he could come back tomorrow, it could be next week, it could be three o'clock this afternoon, you, know, you just, you never know. And I, I just, I don't see from what Paul's teaching, and I don't see from what Jesus has taught us, that there is much significance in sitting around and playing this trivial game of when will he come back. Do you notice that Paul doesn't give us an answer? You notice he doesn't give, a, give them, the church, very much clarity on when this is going to happen? He describes what it'll look like, and he describes how, it'll, how it's going to come about, but he doesn't give them any 
understanding or any more clarity than they had before in regards to when it's going to happen. All of these people over the years that have made uh, predictions about Jesus is going to, you know, going to come in 2012 or Jesus is going to come in 1948. It, you know, it seems to me, I was just thinking about this last night. It seems to me that if you pick a date or you choose a certain time frame, then that already rules it out, doesn't it? Because that means you know it. And if you know it, then he's not going to come back that day. And so, so you, you ask, what are you saying then that eschatology is not important? We shouldn't study the, you know, the theology of last, you know, last things or, or end times. No, I'm not saying that. But you know, you've seen people that make it a almost a an addiction, and they're reading and looking through the newspapers for for these different events, and they're thinking, and you know, they're um, they're overly myopic or myopic, looking only at the one aspect. <clears throat> when the disciples asked Jesus, "Lord, is it now is it going to be the time when you're going to restore your kingdom?" You remember what he told them. Remember what he said? He basically said, it's none of your business. Don't worry about that. And so we, there, there's caution. There's caution that we have to take in this text in that we know have it, we have a description by Paul of what the day will look like, what this time frame will look like. But in terms of trying to guess and, and figure out, is it tomorrow? Is it next week? It's none of our business. Jesus says that. It's none of our business. It's not for you to know the times or the hour or the day. When towards the end of uh, Jesus's time on earth, the first time as he was walking, you remember in uh, the gospel of John, he's walking, I believe on the beach with his disciples and he's speaking in a, just a very sweet conversation with John and Peter. And, you know, he says something very cryptic about, um, the death of John and the death of Peter. And Peter's ears perk up very quickly. He wants to know, well, well wait a minute. You, I'm going to die by persecution. I'm going to be martyred. He's not. Tell me, you tell me a little bit more about that. And Jesus refuses not to. He says, well, what is it to you? You follow me. You don't need to know the facts about how this is going to happen. You just follow me. You be obedient. You say that kind of sounds harsh, right? Why does he, why does he say that? You just follow me. Don't you know? You don't. You don't need to know all the facts because that's the that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter when the time or the date is. If we knew the time or the date, Jesus, I'm, I'm assuming if we knew the time or the date, we would act lazy and slothful. Jesus sees it as important that we not worry about the time or the date, but that we worry about Him. We worry about glorifying him with our behavior. We worry about, worry's not a good word, I'm sorry. You know, we're, we're concerned, I should say, about living in, in such a way that our, our life constantly beams out uh, a sense of the, the holiness of Christ Jesus. And that when, when people see us, they can see that, that there's something that's different about them. Something that's different. I can't. I can't quite put my finger on it. I don't know what it is, but there's something about that person that is different. In the same way, or in a similar way, when Moses spoke to God, my daughter and I have been watching a lot of Moses lately. These, you know, they have these different uh, video cartoons, and some of them are really accurate. And one of them was about Moses speaking to, to God. Remember that? 
he spoke to God and, you know, in this tent. And when Moses would come out of the tent, his face would be just beaming. It would just beam the glory of God. Now, we obviously don't have that. But I'm telling you, people are watching you. They're watching us. And they're wondering, why, why are they different? What is it about them that's different? I don't understand. I don't understand why, you know, you don't get drunk all the time. I don't understand why you haven't had a drug problem. I don't understand why, um, you know, you don't beat your wife. And all of these, all of these, these awful things that, that, that the world gets sucked into, these behaviors and these patterns of life, and there's something... It's not that the ungodly, not the us, it's not that we can't stumble. Not what it, that's not what I'm saying. But there's something different, and you and I both know what that is. It's the holiness of Christ Jesus that becomes apparent, and it just, just beams off of us. And people can see the difference because they're watching us. They're watching you and I closely. And when this day comes, when it behooves Christ to have this, this wonderful, blessed event come, Blessed for us, not not for those who don't know him. Paul says that that we shouldn't be surprised. We're not going to be surprised. Even though there are those that are like the false prophets in the Old Testament that said, peace, peace, everything is peaceful, everything is good. One of the sayings of uh, the early Roman Empire was when you come under Romans, the Roman Empire's rule, it's peace and security all day long. You don't need to worry about us taking over your, your country and becoming part of the Roman Empire, because when we take over things, it's peace and security. Paul says that's what, that's what they're going to be saying. Peace, peace, security. And sudden destruction then will come upon them in the same way as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. But well, I'm not a woman, so I can't relate to the, the, the labor pains. Um, but I can sort of speculate about it because I've seen it a few times. And it's a pretty sudden thing, isn't it? It's just boom, that fast. Paul says that's how quickly, how fast this is going to come, and the unbelieving world will not be ready for it. It reminded me of the the story of Noah in closing. The story of Noah. <clears throat> Jesus even talks about this in, in the Gospel of Luke. Do you remember what, what he said at the times of Noah? He's building this boat faithfully. He's being obedient to what God's told him to do, and they're, they're building this boat every day. And people are marrying. People are having a good time. People are living, you know, living their best life now, and they're living for the moment. And they see this foolish old man and his kids building a boat when it hasn't rained in years. This absolute waste of foolishness. Why would you waste your time building a boat? Are you some kind of moron or something? I mean, you just imagine the mockery that he experienced. And every day, the mockery, every day, people getting married, celebrating marriage, people having children, living, living the good life for the time being, and then all of a sudden, what happens? It starts to rain. And, and Jesus said that, that that water that came down swept them away. It swept them away with, with no warning. 
They're just gone forever. They're gone. And they were not ready. And they did not believe. And so, in closing this morning, I ask that um, that you would take these things seriously as we we study through the, this letter. That this is good news. It is good news for us, but it's also sobering news for those that we know that don't know Christ. It's very sober. That there's going to be a day when destruction comes and. Um, there's nothing that's, that could be done about it. I hope this morning that you've trusted in Christ. I hope that you are living for him and that you're living your lives in a way that is honorable and glorifying to him. Because when that day comes, as Paul says, it will not be a concern or a surprise to you. It'll be a time of, of rejoicing and celebration. It'll be a time of probably relief, relief from pain, relief from stress, and knowing that you will be in eternity, in the presence of God. And nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from that. Nothing, Paul says, will separate us from the love of God. We will all be a part of that. And I thank God that he has done a work in, in our hearts. And those of you this morning that are that have, have embraced Christ, you've made him everything in your life. you trusted in him. You've been forgiven of your sins. I thank God this morning for that. Now, you will not partake in the, the awful surprise that will come one day when he comes back, but that you'll be encouraged. Say, this kind of kind of sounded like this is a little bit gloomy sermon this morning. Paul says that we should take encouragement from this. It's encouraging to know that we're, we're going to be on the right side. We have to persevere. We have to keep pushing forward and not give up, but we're going to be on the right side of things if we continue to follow Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to, to worship you through the preaching of God's Word. I thank you, Lord, that you have reminded us this morning and you've given us a, a word of encouragement that despite the fact that there's going to be difficult days of destruction for those who don't know you and for those who don't love you and don't worship you, we know, Lord, that if we will continue to live for you and continue to follow you and persevere, Lord, that you will have something that's special and something that's so magnificent that it's beyond our understanding. We know, Lord, that, that if we continue to do that, we will, we will have the privilege of being called together as one body, living in eternity with you, free from pain, free from suffering, free from stress and anxiety, free from disease and that we will be together with you. We we find encouragement from that this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word, Lord, so that we can find that. And I pray that on, on, this, on the same side that uh, you would also help us, help us to be witnesses to the truth, to those around us that don't know you. 
Help us to have the courage and the boldness to speak the truth of the gospel to our family and our friends and our co-workers when the opportunity arises so that they will not be surprised by this horrible day of destruction, but that they'll be able to, to be one of us and, and be able to um, worship God forever and eternity. I, I just pray that there, there's, there are opportunities that we come across every day throughout the week when we have a chance to be able to share these things with people. And I, uh, I ask for forgiveness on my part. I've not always done the best job with that because of fear or nervousness or shyness, not wanting people to get upset or angry with me. And I'm sure that's a, a temptation for all of us. Nobody wants to, to be in an awkward conversation and someone for someone to be upset with us. But we know that even more importantly is the truth of these things, that eternity is on the line. And I, I just pray that you would continue to, to make this a missional church and that we would continue to do what we have been doing, which is to, to, to serve the missionaries and to disciple and that we would never forget that, Lord, and that we would continue to, to serve those purposes. Lord. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this, this body, Lord, of believers that I've had the, my wife and daughter and I've had the privilege to be a part of for, I guess, seven, seven years, seven, eight years now. I thank you, Lord, for them, for the blessing and just the love that they've shown our family. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here, this church. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.